When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If we can find a way to hold those self-doubts in a way that doesn't become some kind of reflection of our entirety as a person, like if I can have some self-compassion for that part of me as a whole, but I can entertain the notion that I might have made some mistakes. If you're open to that and finding some time and some space and some gentleness and some kindness and some courage to look at that, to think about that, then that can be really useful. That was Jim Lucas on Psychologists Off the Clock. Curious what psychologists chat about over coffee? We are three clinical psychologists who love to discuss the best ideas from psychology. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoengren, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. In this podcast, we explore the psychological principles that we use in our clinical work. And we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Today, we're bringing you another Clinician's Corner episode, and these are episodes that anyone can listen to, of course, but they might be of special interest to mental health clinicians. Today, I chatted with Jim Lucas from the UK about his work on therapist self-doubt. He really specializes in his work in supervising and training other therapists, and he has some really interesting and kind of surprising news about self-doubt. And, and what that means for therapists. And as you'll hear in the episode, self-doubt can actually have some upsides, especially when it's explored in a particular way with sort of openness and curiosity. That makes so much sense to me. And I um, have definitely experienced a lot of self-doubt as a therapist. One of my earliest memories of self-doubt in the therapy room was in grad school when I was first starting to see patients. And I just remember seeing a patient and her telling me about all sorts of difficult experiences that she was having. And I, I literally thought to myself, wow, she should really go find someone to talk to about that. And then I had this sort of moment of realization where I kind of said to myself, oh gosh, that's supposed to be me. Um, and I think just since then, I've certainly had more self-doubt experiences. And what I've learned for myself is that the self-doubt is often informative and, and more informative than I initially think it will be because when I'm experiencing self-doubt, it's often indicative that I either need to get more information from my patient or that I need to get some support from a colleague. And I think when we sort of dismiss self-doubt or feel ashamed of it, we're less likely to use it as a cue to do some of the things that are helpful for us as therapists. And so by seeing it more as um, something that helps us, helps to guide us, it can actually open us up to the experience in, in ways that are useful. And sometimes I feel like we just all have self-doubt. Sometimes it's even 
just more pervasive. I'm really familiar personally with therapist self-doubt and what's been actually helpful for me has been working so much with other therapists as my clients and a lot of trainees over the past decade. And what I notice is that pretty much every therapist or trainee that's walked in my office has expressed a feeling of they feel like they don't know what they're doing. They wonder if they should be doing more training. And even Jim Lucas even talks about this sort of the go out and buy more books and do more training. So you get rid of therapist self-doubt and it actually doesn't work that way. It doesn't get rid of it. It just makes me feel more self-doubt. And there's a lot of times where I'll have graduate students in my office, they'll be saying things about their own vulnerabilities and mistakes or their lack of case conceptualization. And I'll be looking at them going, oh my gosh, if you only knew how many mistakes I've made with you. <laughs> but sometimes I even bring that up and it just kind of uh, diffuses the self-doubt a little bit that it's something that's more universal, I think, than most of us think. That's so true. I've had trainees before where I just put it on the table, you know, I'm not really sure what to do either. And I actually find it helps. It just helps us to both sort of sit with that not knowing and, and to sort of be more open about it. And one thing that's really lovely, I think that Jim Lucas brings us in this episode is at the very, very end of the episode, after all the, the closing and all that stuff, we have an exercise for you to actually try out. It's an experiential self-inquiry exercise that comes from Radically Open DBT, but it's applied to this specific issue. And it can be really useful to play around with our relationship to self-doubt and basically just explore it and see if there's something to learn from it. And so I've been finding it really helpful when I'm struggling with that feeling that there's just something that's not quite sitting right with my work. I think a lot of times when that comes up, we want to avoid it and try to get rid of it. But if we do that, we might actually miss something important. So I think it's actually a really cool exercise that that I'd encourage you to give it a try. When I was listening to the episode, Debbie, I was also thinking that this exercise and a lot of the questions that he asks about therapist self-doubt would really just apply also to our clients that experience self-doubt, because I also think that that's a universal experience that people bring in to session as well. So this could be uh, some skills that you use with yourself and, but also with in your clinical work. And certainly if you are a new clinician or you supervise trainees, I feel like this episode is a game changer that I really wish that I got a chance to listen to this when I was in graduate school or an internship really would have made me feel, I think, just a little bit safer in being a therapist, that it's okay to doubt ourselves. Absolutely. Well, please do share it with other people who might also grapple with this, and we hope you enjoy it. Jim Lucas is an ACT therapist based in the UK who works in private practice and higher education. He is an accredited cognitive behavioral psychotherapist with the British Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies and a teaching fellow in the School of Psychology at the University of Birmingham. Jim runs a psychology business called Open Forwards, which specializes in supporting people who work in healthcare, education, and other helping professions. As well as offering individual therapy, he takes an interest in delivering training to teams of practitioners on acceptance and commitment therapy and well-being. He is an ACBS peer-reviewed ACT trainer and runs his own monthly podcast called Self-Help Sat Nav. Jim, we're delighted that you're here with us on the podcast today to talk to us about self-doubt. You have a really interesting spin on this idea of self-doubt, and I'm really happy that you're here to talk to us about it today. Thanks for having me on, Debbie. Yeah, I've been a fan of the show uh, for about the last six months when I first discovered it. So yeah, I'm delighted to be joining you. 
Oh, well, thank you so much. We're happy to have you. Well, how did you get interested in this whole idea of self-doubt? What's the story behind your interest in this topic? So um, I live and work in Birmingham in the UK, and I run my own private business here called Open Forwards. And um, we have built the business around helping people who work in the helping professions. Um, so really interested in the well-being of therapists, healthcare professionals, educators. Um, and I guess kind of really interested in that because they're people, we are people that I guess kind of give a lot and um, really kind of interested in the, in the, in the well-being of uh, lots of people more broadly. And I guess I noticed also that although that we're doing that, we're also suffering a great deal as well. I was concerned about levels of stress, levels of burnout, um, levels of uh, anxiety and depression that seemed to be kind of emerging in studies that I was coming across when it was um, looking at people that worked in those professions. And I thought, well, if we're, we're all working really hard and showing a lot of dedication and effort here, yet something significant something serious is going wrong if we're all suffering in quite to quite a large degree in that way and so my interest in self-doubt has, has developed out of my interest in the well-being of practitioners and so when I began kind of researching burnout um, I stumbled across um, a paper that Jason Luoma had written on their website, um, Act With Compassion. Um, I can't remember exactly how I sort of stumbled across it, whether I was sort of researching sort of self-doubt or curiosity or, or something or other, or maybe just self-compassion. Um, and I came across this article that he'd written about this practice called self-inquiry and the cultivation of healthy self-doubt. Um, that he'd come across from um, radically open DBT. And so there was a protocol published on that uh, last year by Thomas Lynch. Um, and so reading Jason's article took me to that protocol, which then I then discovered this, this, this approach called the cultivating self-doubt, healthy self-doubt, and how that can mediate the well-being of people. Well, that's very interesting. I think we're going to delve into a lot, kind of unpack a lot of what you just said in terms of the the work you found, the radically open DBT. Can I ask a personal question? Sure. Do you ever experience self-doubt as a therapist? I think as a therapist, it's been with me since the very beginning um, and continues to be with me. So I was just saying to you before we started, wasn't I, that I would not been well this week and I was feeling nervous about coming on and, and coming across as well as I wanted to come across. And, and so I guess it was getting a bit meta for me because I was starting to have self-doubt about coming on the show and talking about self-doubt. Um, and this isn't the only example. It will show up quite a lot in my therapy, in my teaching. If I think back to when I was training as a CBT therapist, I remember, I remember the anxiety of not knowing enough and feeling like I needed to know much more. 
And one way I used to cope with that was um, by buying lots of books. Mm. I can relate to that. (laughs) (laughs) And just um, by owning them, you'll know more, I think. Exactly. Somehow just by, you know, having (laughs) holding them in my hands, this, this knowledge will just kind of magically absorb through my fingers. Um, And I, and I I lived with a a group of um, old university friends at the time when I was doing that training and buying all those books. And they used to kind of joke about it. They used to say, right, I'd, I'd like you to plot the graph, Jim, of, money spent against knowledge gained and just kind of see just kind of see kind of where this kind of ending up um and I guess kind of on the one hand it was a useful thing to do you know buy books learn improve my knowledge but at the same time it kind of fed this anxiety of feeling like I didn't know enough because of the because I guess because of the way I was going about it yeah well, I appreciate you opening up about that because I certainly experience self-doubt and I think most people do. And yet it's something that we don't often talk about. We maybe don't want to acknowledge it. Um, so what do we even, let's back up here. What do we even, what do you even mean when you talk about self-doubt? What does it look like for people? So I guess technically speaking, self-doubt is about the absence of confidence in your own abilities. Um, and I guess a lack of confidence and self-doubt gets branded as a negative. And I think understandably so, because it can, it can undermine our focus. It can distract us and it can be, I guess, quite toxic at times if, um, you know, we're busy in the middle of our careers, maybe we've got a lot of experience, but then suddenly we start to really kind of feel like we're doubting ourselves. Um, and can really kind of make us begin to feel incompetent um, again. Um, but I guess kind of some of that's also natural, that like we want to be more confident. We want to be good at what we do. We want to be effective therapists. We want to be good at helping people. So this is kind of a natural striving. It's a natural thing that drives us and that we aim for, to, to have more confidence. Um, so I guess kind of that's what the dictionary would say about it. But I think when we talk about wanting more confidence, like I can feel that drive myself. I want more confidence in what I do. A lot of my clients that come through the door to see me will describe wanting to have more confidence. Lots of trainees that I'm supervising will talk about wanting to be more confident in what they're doing. But I guess I think in a lot of ways what we're talking about when we're saying we want more confidence is we're saying that we want more certainty. We want to have less doubt, less uncertainty about what we're attempting to do. And I think that kind of has problems associated with it. I guess what I've come to learn and understand, particularly in the last 12 months to two years, I would say, is just how important the cultivation of healthy self-doubt is for my own personal growth, for uh, my own well-being, and um, also my own skill development. I like that idea of health, healthy self-doubt because I do. I think there's a reason people want that confidence, or they don't like the uncertainty of self-doubt. It doesn't feel very good, right? right. I mean, the, those times when I do feel confident, I it feels better somehow. And yet there is something maybe about being overconfident or about sort of avoiding that uncertainty that can sometimes actually be problematic. 
Right. Yeah, there is, isn't there? That I think when we're when we are very certain, then we can. That might be because we're confident in our knowledge. We're experienced in our way of doing things. We've seen good results from that way of doing things, and so we might start to develop an ease with our the way that we do stuff. We feel quite skillful, but there's a trap there. I think also that we can start to be um, complacent. We start to think this is it. I know. I know what works. I know. I believe what I believe, and this is the right way of doing it. And so then there's a risk then that we stop being curious and we stop looking for alternatives. And I think then we maybe stop learning as well, which I think is is probably one of the most significant dangers of it. Right. We get to this, okay, good enough place and then stop there. Are there other things people might do to avoid that discomfort of self-doubt or uncertainty that, that you see show up? So one of the ways that I think people can try to avoid that discomfort is through hero fantasizing, the inner enthusiasm and uh, desire to kind of save the world, maybe, you know, one person at a time, that we we then start to kind of realise that um, that's not possible. And um, we start to kind of fail at that. And so um, we can get caught up in that this this distraction. I think kind of a sort of swing in the opposite direction of that is a sort of maybe a cynicism or a learned helplessness where we just kind of zone out and we start to feel that maybe, you know, people can't really be helped. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I've seen that more commonly in um, when people have worked in the same job role for a long time in the same location and have started to feel worn down by the system that they're working in. Like they might um, get a little detached from the work. Yeah. And just feeling like they can't make a difference. Um, the people that we're helping, um, you know, the, the odds are stacked against them. It, it's just kind of not possible. Another way I think is, is pretending, you know, more than you do. Um, that we might be too concerned with uh, giving the impression that we can do good work rather than actually spending the time to kind of uh, learn it and develop it as, as much. So I guess this is when I might be concerned about this in trainees if they're, if, if they're not bringing work to, if they're not bringing examples of their work to supervision. Um, and um, not just trainees, but, but other kind of professionals as well. And another way might be putting off practice so I might feel like I doubt my ability to um, effectively implement some exposure with somebody who's experiencing lots of anxiety, some fear exposure. And so I end up talking about it a lot or I end up talking about some mindfulness intervention or an acceptance-focused intervention instead of doing it with a client. So I'm kind of putting it off because of, of the doubt that I'm having. And then two more things that I think I've noticed people do as a way of handling this discomfort is one might be copying your mentor, someone you admire and you really kind of like, you try to embody the way that they do it. And I think that can be useful up to a point, but it can also make you inflexible as mm. you, might, you might not really be tuning in and connecting with the person that you're trying to help as, as well as you could, because you're too busy um, trying to hold on to this image and asking yourself, how would they do it? Um, it can also lead to inauthenticity. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. It can make you maybe try to copy a different style, but then lose touch with you, which is the main thing you bring into the work. Yes. Yes, yeah. precisely. We know how important that is, don't we, in terms of just kind of connecting with our clients and, 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 and working effectively with them. And then, and then lastly, I would, I would think is, is kind of the opposite to kind of like putting them on a pedestal and that's kind of demonizing mentors, criticizing them the way that they, that they do it, you know, blaming, blaming mentors for being kind of inflexible or giving the wrong advice. Um, and I think what these kind of strategies have in common is that they're, they function to delay discomfort and push away what you don't want to be feeling in terms of your own doubt and your own thoughts about what you might not be good enough at doing. Um, and then I think the trouble with these is that they then increase the risk of uh, a person suffering burnout. Absolutely. So what is the surprising relationship that's been found in the research between therapist self-doubt and client outcomes? Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think, I think that's a, a paper that I came across that, that also kind of put me on to um, healthy self-doubt being a useful thing. And um, this was a paper written by Nissen Lee and some of her colleagues in Sweden. And the paper came out in 2015 and it was titled, Love Yourself as a Person, Doubt Yourself as a Therapist. And what they were investigating amongst a group of therapists was their behaviours in relation to themselves. And what they discovered was that um, when therapists had more self-doubt about their expertise, about their knowledge, about the way that they did things, it, it was correlated with better outcomes than those who didn't have that self-doubt. What they also found was that practitioners who practiced self-affiliation, so self-compassion, and, and I think examples of components within psychological flexibility as well, when, when needed, also experience better outcomes. And, but the best outcomes came when people did both of those things. So if you were just self-compassionate, it might have helped your well-being, but it didn't necessarily help your performance. It didn't help you create, derive... Uh, better outcomes. It was the combination of caring for yourself, nurturing for yourself, and making time for reflective practice. So if we can find a way to hold those self-doubts in a way that doesn't become some kind of reflection of our entirety as a person, like if it's not a reflection of our identity, like whether I'm a competent or an incompetent therapist. Like if I can have some self-compassion for that part of me as a whole, but I can entertain the notion that I might have made some mistakes, that the way I did that might have been useful in some ways, but not in others. What can I learn from that? That, if you're open to that and finding some time and some space and some gentleness and some kindness and some courage to look at that, to think about that, then that can be really useful. Yeah, I actually think courage is really important here because part of what you're speaking to is 
asking that really scary question of, could I be doing better? And to me, there's a little courage in that, no matter what it is, if it's as a therapist training to ask the question, how could I do better? It, it almost requires some, some courage to just even put that question out there. And I think to me, if you want to improve, it's a courageous act to, to ask that question of yourself. I agree, because it, it, it hurts, doesn't it? It hurts to go to your discomfort, go to your doubt. It can shake you, can shake your sense of knowing what you're doing. I mean, I was given the example of people in training earlier about um, and, and my own experience of training, but I don't think it, this is just something that happens with um, when novices at that point. Well, maybe that's a narrow description of what a novice is because every time I pick up a book, I feel like I'm a novice. Every time I choose to learn something new, whether I go to a workshop, whether I'm watching something, a webinar, is that I'm opening myself up to learning something new. So I'm drawing attention to what it is that I don't know. And so that's always going to create doubt. Yeah, and that uncomfortable feeling. Yeah. And I actually, I'm just guessing here, but I think too, when the therapist has self-doubt, it might humanize us to the client. I had a client, I had um, made some sort of mistake. I can't even remember what, Nothing, not a big deal. And I, I made a self-deprecating remark to the client, something about how, oh, I wish I was more organized or something. I can't even remember the exact comment, but I remember that he looked at me and he was like, that's the most helpful thing you've done so far. And I was like, <laughs> really? <laughs> and he said, because now I know that you're like me. And I was so struck by that because I thought if we, whether we say it or not, I think if we have that humility or that self-doubt that we carry around and we can be a little bit more open about that, the clients might actually appreciate that. Yeah. So he connected with something in you when you said that, when you showed that, that humility, didn't you? Yeah. It maybe took me down off some sort of pedestal that he may have had me on as the therapist and just reminded him that we're all human, right? Yeah. So there's a common humanity piece in there. You you're in this you're in the same boat. Exactly. You're in the same space, being on the same level. Which leads us nicely, I think, into some of the practices that you found helpful in terms of working with self-doubt in that healthy, effective way. Can you speak a bit more about some of your approaches? I know you've really drawn a lot from the DBT model, the radically open DBT model and self-compassion. How do you work with that? Okay. Yeah. So there, there are, I guess there are a couple of components to this. So I think there's some, the, research around that talks about self-compassion that shows self-compassion as being a mediator for well-being is 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 pretty substantial i remember listening to your interview with um chris germer mm, yes and um you know he, he was highlighting just you know how how just how much research there is out there kind of showing this relationship and and i guess and it's similar in terms of psychological flexibility also being a mediator of this so these things are really useful important for us to kind of do for ourselves um that that help our well-being which i'm just thinking also about the context in which we work in is that we work in caring roles there's there's a really useful book that i came across by scoff holt and 
Trotter Matheson called the resilient practitioner. And they describe kind of helping professions as relationship intense professions in the sense that so much of what we do is focused on another person. But that's where our attention is. That's where our effort and our energy is. Um, and that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of what we sign up for. It's what, it's what we're saying gives us our, our lives, our work kind of meaning. But one of the things that I think then also happens is that there's much less time for us to kind of focus on ourselves. So there's much less time for us to just think about what do I need here in my working day that's going to help me out, that's going to be good for me. And so whilst on the one hand we might know that self-compassion and being psychologically flexible are useful for our well-being, we might not find the time to do it. And so selecting those things and, re- and having some retention of them is a challenge. Is a challenge. So part of my interest is, is about how do, we, how do I, first of all, start to do stuff for myself that is, I can find the time to do. If I can't find the time to do a 30-minute meditation on self-compassion or mindfulness, then it's not going to make much of a difference to me. So I need something that's much smaller, much shorter in length that I can find time to kind of weave into my day. And so um, I started to look at the idea of just five-minute practices. And this fits really well with a process within Radically Open DBT called self-inquiry. And what self-inquiry about is cultivating a sense of healthy self-doubt. And it makes a useful distinction between healthy self-doubt and unhealthy self-doubt, which we haven't really described yet. And I, I think that kind of might be a useful thing for us to just sort of capture now, is that Thomas Lynch in his book would describe a few things that unhealthy self-doubt is. So, for example, he would say that we fear self-examination and so we defend against it. Um, Whereas the healthy self-doubt opposite of that might be that we embrace a temporary state of openness to to disconfirming or unexpected stimuli with the aim of learning something. So defending against self-examination versus embracing a temporary state of openness. I like that distinction. It's it's about how we respond to it. Openness versus getting locked in. Yeah. So, and that defending it, it might call it being closed to it. So we've got a closed versus opened kind of approach. Um, another aspect of unhealthy self-doubt might be showing a disingenuous willingness to question the way that you see things but privately, deep inside, you believe that you're still right. You're just not saying it. Whereas if you contrast this with that you're able to consider your own views as possibly being inaccurate or ineffective. Another component of unhealthy self-doubt might be that you harbour some anger and resentment and blame towards others who you believe are responsible for triggering some uncertainty inside you. And maybe you blame them for forcing you to um, um, unwantedly self-examine whereas the opposite of that might be that you exercise some humour at your own kind of foibles with a sense of kindness and, 
and view all people as, as being fallible. Um, another component he talks about is that unhealthy self-doubt involves resisting change or avoiding or attempting to control, control situations where you might feel challenged, where you might be challenged. So, for example, avoiding going to group supervision, uh, being quite controlled in the way that you might present yourself at supervision versus taking responsibility for actions and emotions that you have uh, and by not giving up when challenged as well. So stepping outside of the comfort zone a little. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I guess kind of different contexts will make that easier, of course, wouldn't they? Like if we feel safe in our supervisory environments, we'd be more likely to do that. We feel safe in those relationships. We'd be more likely to do that. And then lastly, he suggests that unhealthy self-doubt is um, where we might express ourselves in a passive way. For example, we might sulk, we might pout or walk away, give up or act helpless. And of course, that, rem- that has a, a real negative social impact because other people observe that and are affected by that. Um, but if you can contrast that with showing willingness to learn from others, um, that can then enhance your relationships as well. So I'm interested, in, um, Debbie, is, what do you think about those kind of distinctions? Do they, do they clarify what, what, what healthy self-doubt looks like in comparison to unhealthy self-doubt? Yes, Jim, I think that's helpful. It breaks it down and gives me a better sense of what you mean by healthy self-doubt. So it's a state of openness where you're able to consider the possibility that your own views may not be completely accurate, that you might not be as effective as you could be. It allows you a humor and kindness toward yourself for your mistakes and just a willingness to be challenged, taking responsibility for your own actions, even when it's hard to do so, and to yeah, be willing to learn from, from your mistakes. Debbie, I thought I would just give a little bit of a description about what self-inquiry is a bit more so people get Please, more, of a, yes. more of a sense of that. That'd be great. I'll, I'll describe and share with you an example of uh, something that I've kind of done recently, you know, an example of my own self-inquiry to give people a, a, a real live taste of that. Um, and then I kind of take you through kind of how to do it. How does that sound? That sounds yeah. great. Yeah. So self-inquiry is a, is a brief daily practice five minutes maximum that encourages you to learn from your vulnerabilities. And it uses a combination of mindfulness, curiosity, and openness to get close to and learn from moments of discomfort by asking good questions. And by asking good questions, you're trying to find what's called your edge. So your edge is this place that's not known to you. It's a place where you've got something to learn. So like in traditional self-practice, self-reflection, you're seeking to understand your experiences in new ways and to develop new behaviours. Um, so it's to help you expand your choices of response and to be more flexible. So if we think about, well, how do I know where my edge is? How, how am I going to find that? So you can find your edge in events or memories where you feel or have felt uncomfortable. Typical examples might include struggling with a feeling. It might be that you recognize that you're ruminating about a problem or an event that's taking place. You 
notice or can catch that you're strongly defending against your response. Maybe you've done something in a particular way and somebody else seems to kind of object to what you've done or the way that you've done it and you're strongly defending against it. That could be an example of where you might want to focus. Another example might be something where you find that you're quickly rejecting feedback that you've been given or you're quickly rejecting criticism um, without taking time to just find a, a place to kind of absorb and think about what it is that's being said. And then lastly, the opposite of that really, that you find yourself being very agreeable with what somebody else has said to you, that you, you've got this automatic um, agreeing with feedback or criticism that you, like you just kind of want to agree with it and for it to go away quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some, there's kind of some examples really. And these experiences, when we get in touch with them, are often physical. They're, because that discomfort is emotive, it, it, you're going to feel it in the body. And so I, I think this is really useful for us as practitioners. I find it really useful for me because, like I was saying earlier, being busy means that I have little time to kind of slow down and take the opportunity to focus on me. And so this self-inquiry exercise is something that I try to do for myself on a regular basis. Part of my aim is to do it daily. I fail at doing it daily. And that's okay because it's, I guess it's an invitation then, isn't it, to to just kind of pick it up again. Like with all the sounded a little at. harsh to say I fail at it, Jim. Does it? Does to me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the word again sounds, sounds quite strong there, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess it's about also the way that I might say it to myself, like, if I'm telling myself off in a in a harsh tone with I'm failing, then that's different to kind of um, a softer, more gentle kind of way yeah. of telling myself I'm failing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I guess I'm making that point as well also is that um, because this is, I would call this a self-care practice as well. And I'm sitting here talking about self-care being good for you and that it, it helps with your well-being and that this reflective practice does that as well. And I don't want to, I don't want to be misleading that because I'm talking about this, I find it really easy to kind of make time for that's a good a point. basis because I, because I don't. Yeah. And so that's what I mean by failing. Really. Okay. Well, thank you for acknowledging that. Cause yeah, it's easier said than done. Yeah. 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 yeah precisely. And so one way of, of sort of practicing this exercise is to keep a journal, a self-inquiry journal where you write something once a day, just for five minutes. And so it's a sort of, you're asking, you're, 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 you're getting in touch with something that's happened, that's uncomfortable. And you're asking yourself some questions about that experience in a way that helps you get in touch with how it's felt. And then you're asking yourself a, a, this good question that self-inquiry talks about. And the essence of a good question is, what is it that I need to learn here? What is it that I need to learn here? And then there are all sorts of variations of that as well, like, what does this feeling tell me is important here? What does, what does this tension and discomfort in my body suggest I might be resisting? So there are kind of variations on these questions as well. And um, there are lots of ex- examples um, that I, I, can, I can give you a, a handout with lots of examples of these questions on. That's a, 
maybe that could go in the show notes that people could then access as well. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. We, if you send that to me, we'll, we'll put it up on our website. Mm, mm. We can link to other resources that you have as well. Fab. And then, so but let me first kind of read an example of, of something um, that I kind of wrote recently. So this was, this was last week. So I wrote, I wrote this. I'm feeling a little guilty today because I haven't yet completed some feedback sheets for my supervisees. I've tension in my forehead and jaw, plus in my belly. Question to myself. What is this feeling telling me I care about? I care about the task of being reliable and meeting my own expectations and not letting other people down. I'm letting them down. And then I'm noticing that this thought exaggerates my tension. This is telling me that I'm staying close to my edge. So question to myself, what do I need to learn here? Answer, I don't know. My mind is going blank. I'm losing contact with my edge. And I'm, I'm going to go back to the thought that I would just had that I'm letting them down because that was the last thought I was having where I was close to my edge. I feel a little sadness and mildly weepy. Question, what is this feeling telling me? Answer, I've learned that it's not okay to let people down. And then I've put, that's it for today, the end. Wow. So you see, it's quite short, but that probably took me five minutes to kind of go through slowly get in contact with the discomfort, ask those questions and move back and forth. So hopefully what came across there as well is that it's possible to ask yourself a question that then doesn't keep you in this area of feeling uncomfortable. And that's where we're trying to remain throughout this five minutes is, is being uncomfortable, being close to your edge. This is this temporary state of self-doubt that we're entering into you know well I was just gonna reflect on your example how powerful that is and the courage that it takes I think we all have all of these things these experiences that are kind of uncomfortable when they you know when you think about it or when it arises within it just feels there's just like a feeling kind of an icky feeling that comes up and the tendency is to just move on, you know, to feel it for a second and then quickly avoid it. And what you're doing is actually reflecting on it, exploring it, and then trying to learn something from it. And I think that that is courageous and it's very powerful to hear your example of that. Okay, good. I'm glad, I'm glad that it is because I want it to be because I think these exercises are difficult. And they also create amazing opportunities to learn something so powerful as well. Um, and, and that's kind of part of what I want to get across here in kind of sharing this. There is, the mind does something when doing this as well, which makes it tricky, which is it tries to problem solve the struggle in some way. It tries to get you to arrive quickly at a solution to yeah. the struggle. And that's very much what we're not trying to accomplish here. This isn't a problem-solving exercise. It's quite common, like at the end of this example I just shared, that I haven't arrived at a solution. I'm left with a sense of not really knowing what to do for sure. But that's okay. That's what I'm trying to cultivate. 
just trying to introduce some self-doubt that I can then think about this kind of in a different way. So it helps me, it helps me discover a new way of being with this particular struggle. So that, that struggle since doing that hasn't then kind of, I've not ruminated on it in the same way since writing it down. I've been able to just kind of think about it and reflect on it in a more gentle way. Jim, as a, an experiential exercise for our listeners, you have recorded with us a, an exercise that people can do to try this method of exploring the edges of self-doubt and to see what they can learn from it. So what we've done is we've put the exercise at the very end of this episode. And so what we'd encourage you to do is when you have a few minutes, go to that section, the last few minutes, and see what comes up. I did this exercise as an online workshop with Jim the first time. And I found it really simple and yet you can learn a lot from it and it's very effective and interesting. So please give it a try. And we have also linked to a document that Jim created on our show notes that has some instructions for how to do this exercise on your own. So take a look at that as well. And and I think we both agree that this is one we'd really encourage people to actually do. Don't just sort of listen to it and think about it, actually try it. Because these are so experiential that if you don't do the exercise, you won't really get it, right? Yes, I think so. Um, There's a kind of learning that needs to take place here, which is uh, active. Um, By participating in it, that's where the learning is going to occur. Some things we can learn just by kind of observing and taking a back seat. But this isn't really one of those things. And I and I find that it just it, it helps me it helps me let go of stuff that I'm I'm struggling with, and I don't mean let go of it in a way that I just forget about it and move on, treat it as unimportant, but help me find some new way of relating to myself and find some new way of relating to that person who I was who that incident was took place with. Well, I think this is really a wonderful exercise. I hope people will. I'm I'm gonna um, try practicing it regularly. You know, like you try to, <laughs> and have some <laughs> self compassion if I fail to do it daily, um, <laughs> just like you do. Um, and I hope that that folks find this helpful and and will practice. You find this practice useful. And again, we'll link to some of your resources on our, our webpage. Do you have anything else to, to share um, in terms of how people can, can find out more? Yeah, so um, there's the actwithcompassion.org website um, that I know the, I think is run by Jason and Jenna over in Portland. Um, and so there's a couple of articles there that Jason's written on uh, the practice of this. Um, there's also the RODBT website, which talks a little bit about this, as well as the two books that have been um, published on that, if you're interested in the protocol more broadly. Um, yeah, that's probably yeah, what, what I could say about it, really. I guess kind of where I'm at with it is, is that I've spent about the last 12 months kind of practicing this on myself. And I've, I've shared this in a couple of workshops and a couple of workshops around practitioner well-being and, and, and taught people this. And, and people really like the structure of it. That's the feedback that I've got. Um, I guess kind of the next stage, I think, that interests me is about doing this in groups. 
and doing this with work colleagues because there's much more awareness, I think, that can occur when it's being done with somebody else. Like one of the points that Thomas Lynch makes in his book is that it's impossible to achieve heightened self-awareness in isolation. That And, but the, and this journal is something that, that we're doing on our own um, and some increased awareness can occur, but ultimately a lot more could occur when we're doing this with other people. So I, I think about my supervision is that when I, when, I, when I go to supervision and I focus on a, a real struggle with, with a client and I bring something of like what I'm struggling with personally into that, and then we integrate that with some theory, and that's all helped by the media of my supervisor reflecting back to me. They're helping with my, with me with my blind spots um, because they've got a different perspective, a different history, and, and whatever else. And so they're helping me accomplish much more because I'm doing it with them. And so I guess kind of my interest in where to take this next is, is how to sort of cultivate, not this just as an individual practice, but how we do this in pairs, how we do this in small teams, because um, I think there's much more power that can take place when it's done that way. You know, I have a group of, of trusted uh, fellow psychologists that are friends of mine that we also really do something similar together, which is that we rely on each other to reflect on our work and our, you know, our lives. And it's very rich experience. I think that's really cool to think about doing this type of work in a, a in a supportive group environment. That sounds lovely. I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for bringing this to our listeners. I am really, I, I just find this fascinating. I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you're saying. So I appreciate it very much. And we will also link to all of your your webpage and, and your podcasts that you've done and that kind of thing on our show notes so that people can find you and learn Thanks, more. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you so much, Jim. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. And here is the self-inquiry exercise courtesy of Jim Lucas. This is an approach that brings in mindfulness, curiosity, and openness. So just kind of slowing things down a little to notice where you are in this moment. Being aware that you're attending to the here and now. And now allowing some recent struggle to come into your mind. And as you 
think about this struggle. Notice what it is that shows up. What it is that goes through your mind. Notice what emotions show up as you think about this. Notice what arises in the body. So as you focus on this, starting with this question, what is it that I need to learn here? Now, as you notice where your experience goes after asking that question, as you you still feel like you're close to the edge, your edge, where it feels uncomfortable? Or have you got somewhere more comfortable? And if you're still in the area of discomfort, then try to notice what it is that's showing up now, what thoughts have shown up. What feelings are there and where can you locate those in your body? But if you weren't feeling uncomfortable still after that question, then go back to the original discomfort, focusing on that. Maybe we could try out another question. For example, what do these physical sensations in my body suggest I might be trying to resist. Now, without asking you to share what it is that you've, you're thinking about, Debbie, can you just tell me, since asking that last question, are you still in the area of being uncomfortable, close to your edge? Or have you moved away from your edge? I think I kept circling circling in and out of it, actually. Um, because I'd start to touch it, and then I'd kick into this overthinking it thing, which would kind of take me out of it. But right. then I'd start to recognize that's actually part, that's kind of related to the problem. It's some pressure I'm putting on myself. And so I would just be like, well, why don't you just do this and that'll take care of it? And so then as soon as I notice myself doing that, I'd try to 
just say, hold on, move back into it. So it's kind of this toggling between the two. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. Okay. I'm familiar with that experience in it. Yeah. You just described. Yeah. Okay. But definitely what you just said you were doing there is, as a response to that, that overthinking about it, that problem solving response is slow it down and go back, get, try to go closer to the, th- the thoughts, the feelings and the, and your bodily experience of it again. I mean, I think this is helpful and I hope the listeners who participated find it so as well, because there's something about trying to stick with it. That's, takes it to a different place exactly as you said yeah yeah 